Well, praise God. I'm so glad that so many came out. Uh, this is in one way a very somber day, a very heavy day, a very weighty day. And at the same time, such a day again of Thanksgiving because we know the meaning behind all of the events that happened again took place. You know, and it's, it's amazing to look at it. And I think a verse that many times a lot of believers struggle with happens to be again in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 39. And it talks about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, Jesus is praying, and this is what we read. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And this is the first time we really see Jesus struggle. You know, we've seen this boldness that happens to be again about Christ. We see him again uh, face down his, uh, his, the opposition and preach forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he never deters to the right or to the left, but he makes known the truth about himself and how people need to have faith in him. And even when he's going to Jerusalem at this time, he's boldly going to Jerusalem, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows he'll be taken, and he'll be crucified, and after three days, uh, he'll, rise from, he'll rise, and then a short time after that, he will ascend into heaven, where, where he has the exaltation at the Father's right hand, and he knows how all of this happens. And this is why I think people really struggle with this passage. You know, why is Jesus so apprehensive? You know, why this fear that overwhelms his soul? Why is he praying, if it be possible, take this cup from me? And uh, there's many different answers that you can give to that question. But let me just give a couple. You know, and uh, one of them is, that, uh, is, is something that Richard emphasized. And that is that Jesus is truly man. You know, so often we emphasize, and we're absolutely right by emphasizing that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And when he came to planet Earth, he gave up the independent use of his godly attributes, of his godness, you know, to the Father's discretion. And he lived that human life. In other words, he thought and he learned like a human. You know, he needed to rest like a human. He needed to eat, eat like a human. He needed all the various different things that, that we need, you know, yet without sin. And you can imagine, because he had to live that perfect life of faith, you know, that, that, that life before the Father. And it's amazing because he did this all without sin. You know, sin clouds our mind, it clouds our judgment, it clouds the things that, that, that we think and that, that we know. But Jesus never had sin. In fact, when he went to the temple when he was 12 years old, he confounded many of the experts in the law with these difficult questions that he knew the answer for. And why? Because his mind was not clouded in sin. And some biblical theologians believe that Jesus knew all of the Bible. He had all of the Old Testament memorized when he was 12 years old. Now, think about that. Because Jesus knew all of those passages that talked about the travail that talked about, again, what would happen to him. I think well, one of the great graces God gives us many times is he doesn't show us the immediate future. He doesn't show us what's going to happen in our life. I think it would stifle us. And, it's, and in some cases, leave us so depressed, it would, it would almost kill us. And God gives us grace for today. He doesn't give us grace for tomorrow, and he hasn't revealed tomorrow. And I think that's a great grace. But can you imagine knowing all of the events that would happen on that Friday? You know, Jesus knew that. And so there's a, there's a shaking that's going on in the garden at this time. But not only that, Jesus understood the glory of his Father. I mean, think about how he read and studied the Old Testament and meditated upon the Father as the perfect man up above. 
He knew his worth, but he also, because of that, knew how defiling sin was and what it deserved. And he knew he was going to be made an offering. The sins of mankind, of all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be laid on the Son. And he knew all of this. And let me just say this. There's horrors that happen to be again about the cross that we just cannot fathom, that we just cannot comprehend. We have what's written in the Word of God. And really, when you take what's written in the Word of God, our minds cannot um, uh, truly understand the travail that happens to begin of a soul. You know, and so when we look at all of this and consider what Jesus went through and the magnitude of everything that was done for us, you know, I wonder um, if we do take it lightly. I think a lot of times we take sin lightly because we take Jesus lightly. We take, again, what he did on the cross, again, so, so lightly. We don't see the horrendous nature of the cost of sin that happens to be in our life. I think a lot of times when we see, the, see Jesus, when we see his suffering, we, we understand two things. One is we understand how costly sin is, and we do not take it lightly. And the other thing is, is we recognize the depths of mercy, the depths of grace, the depths of our love of the one that we call Lord and Savior. And, and I wonder, you know, have we meditated upon that today? You know, this Easter uh, season, this day that we call Good Friday, I think there's a bunch of things that start to flee away. All of a sudden, sin doesn't become a light in our life. We eschew it. We stay away from it. All of a sudden, you know, forgiveness becomes a little more easier because we realize how much we have been forgiven and the cost of that forgiveness in our life. All of a sudden, we start loving people that we called unlovable before because we recognize how unlovable we were and what that cost of loving us happened to look like. And so what I want us to do tonight for a few moments is I want us to look at the travail of Jesus. I want us to understand something of the weightiness of what took place that first Good Friday. You know, and I want us to see three phases of what we call the passion or the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of times when we preach, and if you've been uh, with us for any amount of time, you know that we look at the scriptures in a micro way, right? We go line by line, word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by se sentence. We study periods, we study apostrophes, we study conjunctions, we study all that, and we study it in a micro way. Well, tonight I want us to do a flyover. I want us to do a macro view and really look at that suffering and truly under, try to understand something of the weightiness and something of the heaviness of that. And the first thing that I want us to realize is the suffering of the passion of Christ before what is known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin are basically the ruling, uh, uh, the ruling body of Israel. They're the religious leaders, but also the ones who have political clout over the nation itself. And this all started right after Jesus uh, uh, goes, out, goes out of the garden. Right after he finishes his prayer, he's met by this mob. And this mob again comes to him. And it's amazing to look at this mob because they're led by a certain person. And that happened to be again Judas. You know, in Judas, here he is, this great friend. And he tells the mob, I will identify who Jesus is. Remember, it's pitch black at night. I'll identify him. I'll kiss him. And it's many times called the Judas kiss, and it's the worst betrayal that you can ever have. And you can almost, uh, I, I don't know, I try to imagine, you know, Jesus looking at Judas. And I ask the question many times, and I don't know, why, what's it look like? You know, is he angry? Is he frustrated? Is he bitter? And I think he's none of those things. I think there's a remorse that happens to be on the face of Jesus. 
You know, there's empathy, there's pity, because he realizes beyond a shadow of a doubt the eternal destiny that happens to be again of this man. You know, and so he's taken to this Jewish body called the Sanhedrin in the early hours of what we would call Friday morning. And they put him on trial. And let me just say this, that it was absolutely illegal. It was absolutely against the law to try anyone in those morning hours, in those wee morning hours. And the reason why it had to be done during the day. That, that, that's so if there's witnesses of the accused, they could come forward, they could give testimony, and everything was done in the open. But they don't care about everything being done in the open. They want to condemn Jesus. They want the death of the Lord Jesus. So we see this continue on uh, before he's even brought up to a pilot in Mark chapter 14 and verse 61 and following. This is what the scripture says, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, that's before the Sanhedrin. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And listen to how clear Jesus' answer is. And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And listen what happens next, because this is the verdict that's reached by this court. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Now, what did Jesus claim to be? And let me tell you what Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And all through his three years of ministry, he did miracle after miracle, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, to prove, to validate that he was none other than the Messiah. And they threw all of that away, and they condemn him to death. And what comes next? I think some of these passages of Scripture, we read them so often. Every Easter, every you know, Sunday school class, we read these verses, we read these verses, we read these verses, and I think a lot of times we become desensitized to them. Don't you think? I mean, these are heavy verses. These are hard to, 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 to really read because we realize this is done to one who is innocent. This is done to one who is our Lord, who is our friend, who is our master, one that we love. And right after, again, we have that, that verdict that's read in Mark chapter 14. We have this recorded, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now, can you imagine anything more insulting, anything more degrading than a bunch of men spitting on you? Can you imagine that? You know, it not only says that you're worthless, but you're even lower than that. You are a curse to society, and it would have been better off if you had never been born. And they spit on him freely, gleefully. They put, again, a hood over his face, and they began to punch him. They began to slap him. They began to hit him. And they mockingly asked him to, to name who hit them. I mean, it's amazing to see. It really is. You know, and then, the, and then we're told that the guards joined in on this. And you have to realize who the guards are. These are temple guards. Otherwise, these are not Ro Roman citizens. These are not Roman guards. But these are the temple guards. These are fellow Jews that are hitting this man at this time. And you have to realize who the Sanhedrin are. The Sanhedrin are the upper crust of society. They're the rich. They're, they're almost like the nobility. 
They're the educated. They're the sophisticated. And here, because of their hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ, they, ought, they act like barbarians. You know, and think about it. Because we, God's given us imagination and he's given us words. You know, and he's given us these narrative passages. And it does good for us to see what is taking place. You know, and I wonder, what was going on in the mind of Jesus when he's under that hood? When they're spitting on him. When they're hitting him. When they're saying all manner of evil that happens against him. Remember, this man, this perfect man, this God-man, knows the scriptures perfectly. You know... And maybe Isaiah chapter 50 and verses 5 and 6 come to pass because we see it coming to pass right here. And it says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I, speaking of the Messiah, and I was not rebellious. So what did I do? I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And think of it. The one who is doing this is doing this all voluntarily. He has the power to end it, and he chooses not to. I think the amazing thing is that he comes out of the garden, don't you? When you realize, again, all of this is going on, and it's horrendous. It's really tough to contemplate. That's what I mean. A lot of times we look at Good Friday and we look at it and we recognize the significance of the death that he's done this, but we don't see the weightiness of it. We really don't see the cost of our sin. And you know what? You know, when we look at this passage of Scripture, it gets worse. It does not get better. Because not only is there passion, again, not only is there suffering before the Sanhedrin, they're suffering before Rome. They're suffering before Pilate. You know, and right after this, right after they have their declaration, right after they uh, club him, you know, they take the bruised and battered body to Pilate. And Pilate knows beyond a shadow of doubt. You know, he looks at Jesus, and this man ain't a threat to anybody. You know, he knows that the Jews are up to something else. He knows that beyond a shadow of doubt. And he wants nothing to do with it. And he knows Herod's in town. And Herod's many times called the king of the Jews. So he sends him to Herod, let, this is a Jewish problem, let you handle it. And Herod's in town, of course, to celebrate the Passover. And he hopes that he will get an audience with Jesus so Jesus can do some of the, his uh, tricks you know, in, his, um, in his presence. And he comes and he puts a mock a, a robe on him of royalty. You know, and when Jesus will not respond, he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate doesn't know what to do. You have to realize there's history going on here, and Pilate has agitated the Jews so much so that it's become to Rome's attention time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. And he was sent to that area to keep the peace. That was the main thing, Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That was the most important thing. And he knows if one other complaint comes up, this could mean consequences for him. So what to do with Jesus? You know, he's even warned by his wife. You know, she had a dream, and she comes and sends word to him, have nothing to do with this man. You know, so what does he do? Well, he remembers the Roman custom. You know, here's the Romans that are ruling over the Jews, and every Passover to appease the Jews, they would let a Jewish criminal go free. And so, guess what he does? 
You know, he, he, he in his worldly wisdom takes the most notorious criminal that there happens to be, and it's Barabbas. Barabbas is a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. And here's his beloved rabbi over on this side, Jesus. And he's sure he knows who they're going to take. But they call out what? Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Set Barabbas free. Right? And this is what Judah, this is what Pilate asked. And I want you to get this. What do I do with Jesus? He's still willing to let him go. And you know what they call out? Crucify him. Crucify him. They don't say execute him. They don't say kill him. They say this, crucify him. It was the most wicked, the most humiliating, the most elongating type of death that Rome had ever established, that they could ever think of. And that's what they're crying out at. And you know what Pilate wants to do? He knows, he knows Jesus is innocent. He still doesn't want to put him to death. You know, and listen to how the narrative uh, continues. You know, in John chapter 19, it says this, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, and listen to the Jews, because they hate Rome. The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, right? They don't care about him. They just ask for insurrectionists to be set free. They don't care about Rome. But beyond a shadow of a doubt, they want Jesus to be crucified, to be humiliated in death. You know, so what did Pilate do? He takes a basin washes his hand of the whole affair and delivers Jesus over to be crucified as if, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that resolved him of the great crime of, of, of executing an absolute innocent man. And what comes next? Again, I think a lot of times we read over Scripture so fast that we do not pause and see what's going on. And well, what comes next is absolutely painful. It is absolutely so tough to read. You know, and in Matthew chapter 27, in verse number 26, it says this, then he released for them Barabbas. And then it says this, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him up to be crucified. Now think about it. Because if you're in the ancient world, you know what scourging is. You know, many times we try to picture it as a whipping, but it's far, far worse than even a whipping. You know, and I'm not trying to undervalue, again, that, that has been done to people. You know, um, uh, John Piper quotes William D. Edwards in, in a Desire and Guide article, and he talks about, again, what scourging is or flogging was, and this is what he writes, flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of various uh, variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied. The back and buttocks and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated uh, positions. It was not known whether the number of lashes was limited to 39 in accordance with Jewish law. And, 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 and these men were experts. They would go and they would know how to, how to whip and how to stick 
those leather thongs with that metal and with that bone inside, so much so that it would dig into the skin and they would rip it off. And again, and again, and again. And many who were condemned to death, even condemned to crucifixion, died right here. And think of it. What kept Jesus' body even going? And it's this. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt he had not taken that cup. Father, if it be possible, take this cup. But now my what? He realized he hasn't drunk the full cup of God's wrath. He realizes that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the whole battalion of soldiers begin to make sport and mockery of this would-be king. They take this limp body, and you can imagine how limp it happened to be. And again, and they put it on a seat, you know, a raised seat. They put a robe, you know, a scarlet robe that happens to be around him. And you can imagine how painful that must have been with all the open wounds that happened to begin on Jesus Christ. They take this uh, vine that, it, that happened to grow in Palestine, and, 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 and they form it into a crown and thrust it. And, and, and when they talk about, again, the thorns, these thorns are not just little thorns that, that we have in our rose bushes. These are probably anywhere from, I would say, anywhere from three to six inches long. And they thrust it on his brow. And they give him a reed, you know, as a scepter. Remember, a scepter is a thing of power and authority. And they set him on here, and then they bow down in great delight. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Look at this man. And it's hard to look at. You know, it's hard to see. And really, again, he, uh, Jesus would have, would, have, would have known this even before it happened. But Isaiah 52, verse number 14, would have been true of Jesus Christ at this time. And listen to what it says. This is here that we would know this. And it says this, as many were astonished at you. Why? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. If you knew Jesus... And then after all that has taken place up to this point, you would not recognize Jesus. You would not recognize even that he belonged to humanity. Right? And this is good Friday. This is, this is the cost that happens to me again of our sin. And we see this passion. We see this suffering. You know, it's, uh, before the religious leaders, we see this suffering again even before Rome. But we also see the suffering, or what we call the passion of the cross. And it's at the cross where our sins are paid for. It's at the cross, again, where every, everything leads up to that. And it's amazing to look at it, because if you read through the Gospels, you know, over and over and over and over and over again, and you want more, and you want more, and you want more um, information about the crucifixion, there's very little information about the crucifixion. You know, the whole process itself. It basically says they crucified him. You know, that's it. You know, and the reason why is, I think, twofold. And one is that it's so painful. You know, this is not a nice, light reading that happens to be there. But this is so painful. This is our Lord. This is our Master. This is our Christ. This is our Savior. This is our hope. And look at how he's being treated here. You know, and I think it's just too painful to write about all of the details. But the other thing, again, that they know and we don't know because we've never seen the crucifixion, we've never come across, you know, that scene any time that happened to begin in our life, they, they came across it. 
they knew what it was like. They knew that the victim was laid out, you know, on those um, on that cross. You know, his hands, uh, the spikes would have gone through his hands. The spikes would have gone through his feet. You know, they would have dug a little hole and they would have, uh, with ropes, put it upright and it would have thudded into the ground. You know, and we often picture Jesus being lifted way up high and he's there and he's muscular and everything else like that. That's not him. You know, his body would have been heathing in so much pain. His body would have been unrecognizable. And he, and he was only anywhere from 12 to 18 inches off the ground. And it spoke of this, relief is that far away, but you're never going to get there. You're never going to get there. It's never going to come. You know, and, and what Rome did many times is they left the body on the cross, right? And it was left there as a further humiliation, even after death. You know, and it would rot. You know, the only instances where that did not take place was, uh, was, was the Jews. And the reason why is because they had what was called the Sabbath, and they did not want to agitate the Jews. So they allowed, after the person expired, to take him or take uh, whoever off the cross. But it was basically a message. It was for the worst criminals, the worst of the worst, the lows of the lows, and it said this, don't mess with Rome. William Farley describes the crucifixion in his book, Gospel Shaped Humility, and this is what he writes. He says the victim was nailed or tied to a cross that was then impaled into the ground. The condemned was left to die a slow death from thirst and exposure. It was lingering, agonizing, torture. And because the loss of blood was minimal, death usually took several days. The fastest recorded deaths were after 36 hours. In some cases, the executioners broke the victim's legs, crushed the ribs, or scourged them to hasten death. And then he says this, they showed Jesus this mercy, speaking of the scourging. Convulsions usually set in. And each movement tore the victim's hands and feet against the raw wounds. The pain was excruciating. Because the offender cried out for death, convic- uh, uh, soldiers were stationed around the cross to prevent friends from killing the convicted or freeing him by force. To enhance the humiliation, the male factor was often Crucified naked, the authorities usually nailed a placard over the cross, broadcasting the crimes of the crim- that they, which the criminal suffered. It might read, stealing, murder, or insurrection. In Jesus' case, it read, King of the Jews. He was crucified, think of this, for telling the truth. But he was none other than the King of the glory. Now think of it. Can you think it can get any worse? Do you think it can get any worse? And it got worse because of everyone who happened to gather around. You know, one of the things I love about church, and one of the things I love about the family of God, is there's so much support. You know, especially when we're going through travail, when we're going through suffering. You know, and all of you, again, have realized that who have gone through loss. You've been so thankful for the support, but imagine having no support. Imagine having the opposite from support. You know, because we read this in Matthew chapter 27 uh, tonight, 
But it, but it says this, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And then the chief priests even joined in, in in verse number 42. He saves others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe on him. I mean, think of the taunts. Because twice they say, what? Come down from the cross. Save yourselves. You boast that you can save others. Why don't you save yourself? And that's the whole point. He can't save anyone if he comes down from that cross. You know, and here he is, right? He could have called 12,000 angels. 12 legions of angels. He could have again said, done and everything all of humanity was done but he died he went through all of that for us now think of it can it get any worse right can it get any worse and it does Richard read this Matthew 27 verse number 46 and about the ninth hour, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sambakantanai. That is, here's the translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that's a big mystery verse. But you know what it tells us? Jesus suffered alone. There's no comfort. Think of it, all of his life, all of his life, he's been in this sweet fellowship with his Father God. It's been so intimate. But here he is, here he is, a sin bearer, drinking the wrath of God. And here's where we have to be careful as believers, because we hear this so often. This is the first time in all of recorded history that the Trinity has been severed. And let me say beyond a shadow of it, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And you know why? God cannot be divided. God is one. There's not three gods. There's one God in three persons, but in some mysterious way. And again, this is the mystery that happens to me right here. The Father turns the back on the humanity of Jesus Christ when he suffers on that cross. And why? And why? Because he's bearing the load of your sin and my sin. Isaiah 53 explains that he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carries our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken. What was he? Smitten of God and afflicted. But what's the truth? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All this happened. Why? Because of our transgressions, because of our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Let's go back to the garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Can you understand it? The last words recorded of Jesus are in John 
And it says this, and when Jesus received the sour wine, he said this. This is echoed by Christians all over the world today. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word, it is finished. Here's the cup. And there's not a drop left. Right? Jesus didn't die. Jesus didn't suffer more than he needed to, but be beyond a shadow of a doubt. He drank every bit of that cup of the wrath of God. And as we close tonight, it is amazing what we complain about. Isn't it? What we fuss about. What we say that we deserve. Isn't it incredible? And then we start to see, then we start to see the message of Good Friday. We start to see the horrible nature, the horrible cost, the weightiness of our sin. But not only that, we see the weightiness, the weightiness, the love, the grace, the mercy that is given and offered to us as Jesus Christ. And and let me say, how can we ever be the same again? How can we ever be the same This Good Friday, see the goodness, the bravery, and the love of Christ. Be amazed at him. We need to come and adore the Savior of our souls. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this text, oh God, as we take a flyover of several chapters, Lord, that take in the humiliation, the suffering, the passion of Jesus Christ. As we look at the cross, Lord, and we realize the innocent lamb was taken. Lord, innocent, no sin, no blemish, was taken, was sacrificed, was substitute for sin bearers like us. And we were, when we look and see the cost of the one who did not deserve this, Lord, how can we ever take sin lightly again? Lord, how can we ever frolic? Lord, when we contemplate what Christ has done for us. God, help us to be amazed. Help us to be drawn by that love. Help us to be drawn by that security that Jesus paid it all. We thank you so much. Just be with us now as we conclude. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.